You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Harry Potter. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, muggles. <laughs> that reference will make a little bit more sense to you a little bit later in the show. <laughs> as we record this, it's before Thanksgiving, but of course, as our audience is listening to it, it's after Thanksgiving. So, did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? <laughs> I will, yes. Oh, Gail, yes. you have I love Thanksgiving. Oh, I'm going I to be so stuffed. Too. Oh, my gosh. You guys, it's like one of my favorite holidays. It's so fun. I always do kind of a Friendsgiving or an orphan Thanksgiving at home Mm. and, you know, take in all the people who aren't leaving for the holiday and cook a big meal in my new kitchen, which is really Mm. exciting. I get to really break in all of my um, kitchen appliances. Also, I make the best sweet potatoes, just saying. Yeah, what do you mean? The sweet potato casserole, it's delicious. And here is the trick. (laughs) Yes, it's delicious. Here's the trick. A little bit of orange juice. Orange juice. Secret ingredient. Okay, we're Secret ingredient. It keeps it really, really moist and it gives it a little zing. It really takes, it like brings out the sweet potato flavor more. It really mixes together well with the marshmallows and the cinnamon and all the yumminess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Thanksgiving's awesome because there's no obligations, just food. Just food. Right? You just don't have to do anything. You just go It's like food and football. I watch football, yes. Yeah. Yes. Everyone's favorite. Yes. It's a weird Thanksgiving fact. The average person consumes 4,500 calories on Thanksgiving Day, enough oh. to gain 1.3 pounds. That's oh, disgusting. Here's another, here's another weird Thanksgiving oh, like fact. 40, Not quite as 500. That's disgusting. Not quite as interesting, but because my boyfriend can't eat dairy, I discovered a couple years ago that Pillsbury Crescent Rolls are completely dairy-free. I'm not sure how they pulled that <laughs> off, <laughs> but in case if that's a concern of yours, yep, nothing in there that's a recognizable right. ingredient. It's more polysorbate 80. I love, I love Thanksgiving the- because mm. this is a holiday about being with friends and family and overeating. Which are two of my favorite things. <laughs> it's not, you know, I love Christmas, but Christmas is complicated. There's tons of tons of uh, like work to get Christmas up and running. Where you know Thanksgiving is is cooking. That's it. You cook, you eat, and you laugh. Concentrate on the, yeah. the food and the people. That's right. I guess well, it's, I guess it's an okay holiday. I you know what for <laughs> me Thanksgiving is a little stressful just because it. I do feel the obligation and the guilt of not having gone home. I almost always avoid going uh, going home, and I love to sp- spend it with my families. So I think, and I'm with Bob on this one, that Halloween is sort of the best holiday just because there are no family obligations involved yes. at all. <laughs> you just spend time with people you like. But you don't yes, get you don't exactly. get two days off from work with Halloween. That's true. Yeah. I get you, I take Halloween off every year. I do not work. But Thanksgiving on Halloween, is also period. Thursday, Friday, You're which means you actually get a four day weekend. Yeah, that's, that's right. You have that's no nice. choice but really to have a four day weekend for for a good amount of people. I wonder what the emergency department is like on Thanksgiving. If people have like they think they've had heart attacks from overeating. Usually people hmm. hold off, you know, on holidays. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, interesting. They're like, I'll yeah. deal with it tomorrow. Yeah, they, yeah. It's a <laughs> post-holiday rush, you know. <laughs> their, 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 their pain tolerance goes increases in the holiday. I remember um, my father-in-law, who was a surgeon, was working in the emergency room on Christmas Eve. And an entire family decided to come to the emergency room on Christmas Eve so that they could all have their lice treated. 
Oh, oh holiday lice. Holiday Christmas lice. Eve lice. Christmas oh. Eve. Oh, my That was their bummer. gift to each other, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Is that the gift that keeps on giving? <laughs> Ew. And he said, why? They said, what would Christmas coming in? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Does, does our, wait, does our audience really know what that is? And what they should from? know. We, we can't okay. explain it to them. They okay. should know All what right. that reference is. I agree. Can you explain I, it to me? I, no. No. <laughs> Right. that it was Time Bandits, the movie Time Bandits. Sure, the, the John was. Cleese scene, the funniest, oh, God, one of the funniest so freaking movie uh, moments in movie history. Thank you. I do love John Cleese as Robin Hood. John Cleese as Robin Hood. Uh, he was hilarious, freaking brilliant. Okay, let's get started. Kara, you're going to get us started with what's the word? Yeah, and you know what? I got an email from Kevin Folta, and he recommended that we try something new, and I want to see how well it goes. <laughs> okay, now. Steve, you know the word because we always discuss it before the show, but I would love to pick somebody at random like Evan. I'm random. You're random. How would you like to use the word autopoesis in a sentence? Autopoesis. Please pass the autopoesis. <laughs> I haven't had enough. <laughs> yeah, not anywhere close. Um, autopoesis, A-U-T-O-P-O-E-I-S-I-S, was recommended as uh, the word this week by Goran Kalik. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, in Canada. Autopoesis, I actually want to start with the roots, with the etymology, because I think it makes more sense, and then work backward to the definition. It's made up of the Greek roots auto, meaning self, and poesis, meaning creation or production. Poesis can be further reduced to the verb. Uh, that means to make. It's the root of the word poetry which is the result of making, creating, and composing. But this is a modern term. It was first coined by Umberto uh, Maturana. Yeah. Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela, two scientists from Chile who used the word to describe the way that cells self-regulate their biochemistry. So it's an interesting word because if you look it up in um, a traditional dictionary like Merriam-Webster, its definitions are horse's mouth definitions. So um, it, it gives two of them. Quote, the property of a living system, such as a bacterial cell or multicellular organism, that allows it to maintain and renew itself by regulating its composition and conserving its boundaries. The notion of autopoiesis is at the core of a shift in perspective about biological phenomena. It expresses that the mechanisms of self-production are the key to understand both the diversity and the uniqueness of living. And this is a direct quote from Francisco Varela in mm. Self-Organizing Systems, an Interdisciplinary Approach, um, published in 1981. Here's another quote from Lynn Margulis, Margulis and Dorian Sagan from What is Life in 2000 that says, all living things from bacterial speck to congressional committee member evolved from the ancient common ancestor, which evolved autopoiesis and thus became the first living cell. So really, it's this idea that the cell as a unit is self-regulating and self-sufficient. The Gorin in his email to us actually wrote, this is super interesting. I love this because it expands well beyond biology. While reading a paper about machine autonomy, I came across a word that I thought might be interesting for you to explore on the show, autopoiesis. My understanding is that autopoiesis can be used to describe any process generated by the system itself. The word is not limited to biology. The seemingly broad application of the word makes it particularly interesting. For instance, in philosophy, a person is morally autonomous only if his or her moral principles are his or her own. As such, one could say some religious followers are not morally autopoetic. First of all, it's it's a complicated word for sure, because I think there are other terms that describe components of it. 
like it's not quite the same thing as homeostasis and it's not quite the same thing as feedback mechanisms, um, but they they sort of feed into it. Um, but it is a very specific and I think a very poetic word that can be used to describe this sort of this self-sustaining or self-regulating way um, that cells keep up with their own biochemistry. It's kind of a higher level concept than yes. homeostasis. It's Absolutely. It yeah. like includes homeostasis yes. among other sort of functions. Right. Um, but mm. it reminds me of another word which was recommended by another listener, Alba. Alba wrote to us, do you guys remember when I did the word relict? Yes. yes. And oh, kind yes, of talked about the difference between relict. Yeah. And so Alba wrote, your observation that the word relict is itself a relict made me think of a word I'd like to suggest, autological. I the love property this word. It's so good. It's the property of a word that describes itself. So I found a great article by Mental Frost. Mental Frost. Um, I found a great article by Mental Floss that lists a bunch of autological words. Word is autological because the word word is a word. English is autological because it's written in English. Hey. Noun is autological because it is a noun. Verb is not because the word verb uh-huh. is a noun. You like that? Here's a good one. Polysyllabic. Lots of syllables there. Sesquipedalian. That word means long word. Yeah. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. it's a pretty long word. Unhyphenated is not hyphenated. So that's good. Never yeah. thought, I never thought of that. Isn't that funny? And here's a good one, but let me see if I can pronounce it correctly. Properoxytone. Yeah, properoxytone. And that word, the definition of the word properoxytone means that you stress it on the antepenultimate syllable. Mm. So the third to last syllable. And it's properoxytone. So it is autological. So many fun ones here. Can you guys think of one? Just think of one off the top of your head. How about Um, the word sound since it makes a sound? Yeah, that's a good one. The opposite of autological is heterological. Oh, this is great in the, in the mental floss article. The opposite of autological is heterological. A heterological word like yellow or square does not describe itself. So does heterological describe itself? If yes, then by definition, it's autological. So then it doesn't describe itself. But if no, then heterological is heterological. Therefore, it actually does describe itself, which means it's autological. Am I blowing your mind? <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. <laughs> so heterological so fun. cannot be either heterological or autological. No, yeah, a heterological word by definition does not describe itself. So, or is one that does not apply to itself. Like long is not a long, verb is not a verb. Yeah, all these meta words are really awesome. So, first news item, we're going to talk about photosynthesis. You guys remember that Ooh. from your third grade classroom, science classroom? Of course. I used to teach photosynthesis. I used to teach bio 101, and it was always a very fun unit. That's a, that's a fun word to teach your young children, Jay, when they get a little bit older. Why? You think they, like, they're attracted to it? Just saying the word photosynthesis is fun to make it like a four year old say the word photosynthesis. That is fun. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Here's the actual news item, though. Scientists have discovered a method for increasing the efficiency of photosynthesis in plants. It's actually in all flowering plants, which includes many crops, right? So uh, this is how they do it. This is cool. I didn't even – I wasn't aware of this phenomenon. Um, this, this For me, this totally came out of the blue. So photosynthesis is obviously the process by which plants make sunlight into food. Uh, sunlight is the energy, but they also, you know, absorb CO2 from the air, water from their roots, and, uh, they turn all of that into their own food, into sugars. 
there's actually a really complicated process, even though I know, like, again, in, in our whatever third, fourth grade science class, you learn this very simple equation. Uh, but it's actually a process that involves – it's a 140-step process, 140 steps Whoa. involving 30 distinct proteins. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Used by plants, algae, and, in, and some, bacteria, some bacteria. How could that arise naturally? Yeah. Impossible. <laughs> That's right. Must be designed. Right? So <laughs> – and right? this this is uh, obviously an ancient – uh, pathway and plants have had a long time, evolutionarily speaking, to tweak the, the hell out of this process. One of the things that they do in direct sunlight, uh, many plants actually may get damaged by the sun. So, you know, d- you know, prolonged exposure to direct sunlight could actually be damaging to plants. So they have to bleed off some of the extra heat that's produced to protect themselves. So they produce proteins that are protective. But that reduces the efficiency of their photosynthesis, but they have to do it in order to prevent like the leaves from turning brown and dying. But let's say then a cloud passes overhead. They switch off the protective mechanism so that they make maximal use of the light that they're getting. Does that make sense? So they reduce the efficiency of their photosynthesis in or- and dissipate heat in order to protect themselves during direct sunlight and then they turn off the protection when they have less than direct sunlight or which could include something as transient as a cloud passing in front of the sun but it takes a little bit of time for that to happen for that for the protective system to turn off so what the researchers did was they targeted that process the turning off of the heat protective system they identified the genes that are necessary for the proteins that do that. And what they did was they, they their test plant was a tobacco plant. They inserted extra copies of that gene so that the plant would be able to crank out more of the protein and uh, more quickly turn off the protective system. They calculated that this has the potential of improving the overall if you average out the overall photosynthesis efficiency by 20%. That's significant. Yeah. So they tested it in uh, a modified tobacco plant in a, in a field test, a real-world field test. And they looked as their primary outcome, they looked at the dry matter productivity, like how much plant was produced over time dry in, by dry weight. And that increased, that productivity increased by 15%. Wow. Which wow, is that's awesome. Potentially that's huge, right? So again, it remains to be seen how well this will translate into other crops, you know, corn, wheat, soy, whatever. The researchers say that now that they've done the proof of concept, they're going to target soy, wheat, and rice next because those are huge, you know, staple crops around the world. That's incredible. And again, I know that there have been researchers working on ways of improving photosynthesis. I wasn't aware of this method until they published a study. So that I, I love that when that happens, like something totally surprising comes out of the blue like that. The other thing that other researchers are working on. So, you know, that, so that there are different types of photosynthetic systems and some are more efficient than others. And most of our crops are using an inefficient photosynthetic system. And so all the researchers have to do, although this is proven to be very tricky, is they need to change seven or eight proteins, you know, genes to the more efficient one and boom, 20% boost to photosynthesis in that 
crop. Uh, they haven't successfully done that yet using genetic engineering, but they're, you know, they're, they're working on it. I don't know how close they are, but it's complicated because you got these proteins all work together. You know what I mean? You have to, you have to change a suite of genes that are all interacting and all working together and not just one. And, and it's, it's tricky to do that. Um, even with, uh, genetic engineering. So, but if they ever get that to work, that could be yet another boost. Now, what's interesting here, this would be the first real genetic modification, the, you know, the one that they've, they've uh, got working now, uh, that, in, that not only, you know, uh, improves the process of growing plants or reduces inputs or, in, reduces loss or whatever. This is the first one that actually could increase the potential yield of a crop. You know, it's actually increasing the efficiency. It remains to be seen what other, like it might, this might require greater inputs in other ways. You know what I mean? Like you might need to use more fertilizer or more watering or whatever in order to get that 15% out of the, out of the crop. And so what, you know, it's still uh, the, uh, I think the biggest game, I mean, all aspects of farming, of course, are important, but the amount of of uh, food we can produce per acre, I think, is perhaps the most important variable because, uh, as I know, as we've discussed before on the show, uh, there's only so much land on the earth, and you know, it's just you know, we're actually using all, all the the best farmland already. The biggest environmental impact that farming has comes from converting natural ecosystems to farmland, um, and so the you know we, we're going to have to produce more and more food. But we don't have more and more land, you know, so and we, and we don't want to keep converting land over to farmland. So, it, it, you know, being able to just increase the potential yield of the land that we have is going to be increasingly important. When I wrote about this, I, I also discussed the fact because I've read obviously I've read a lot of on both sides of the GMO debate. And this is an interesting one to follow. For the same reason that I thought like golden rice, you know, adding vitamin A to rice was an interesting one to follow because it breaks all of the usual narrative elements of the anti-GMO side, right? This is being done by universities. This is not corporations. I'm sure there'll be some patents involved somewhere, but who knows? They may make some of them available open source. This doesn't involve pesticides or anything this isn't a trans gene they're not taking a gene from a fish you know they're fish just tomato. yeah they're just increasing the copy number of a gene that's already in the plant you know what i mean it's yeah it's hard to consider the, you know what objection they can come up with although i'm sure they will but it's fairly benign like like golden rice even but even more so they see themselves as purists and i think any modification yeah. they, they oh yeah they don't want Absolutely. Nothing. I mean, I think it's a pretty safe prediction that the hardcore anti-GMO crowd, they're not going to say, okay, okay, this one's okay. They're not going to say that. They're going to oppose this uh, on whatever grounds they can invent. So for gold and rice, what the, I think their fallback is there's other ways to accomplish this goal. We don't need this. I've already seen anti-GMO activists argue that we don't need to increase our food yield because we already produce enough food to feed the world if we had if we decrease waste and improve distribution. Well, it says it's patently false. I mean, especially when you consider in you know by 2050 or even earlier than that, you know, the, the food requirements are going to be far beyond what, what they are now. Yeah. You got to be thinking to, you know, a generation ahead. Oh, absolutely. That that's that's the key point. So, even if it's technically true, if you like add up all the food that we produce and if you optimally 
distribute that around the world without waste? Would we have enough food, calories to feed everybody right now? Yes. But eliminating waste is easier said than done. It's not like you could just say, oh, we just have to eliminate waste. Okay. Like we're not trying to do that. I mean, yeah. that's that's a complicated issue. Again, obviously we should be doing that, but it's not so easy. Uh, and what about equitable distribution? Yeah. Not we'll just so solve, easy. We'll just solve all the world's political problems so that there's no problem with equitable <laughs> distribution of yeah. food. <laughs> Again, right. not that this isn't a real issue that we need to be solving and working on, but Bob, you're right. Even if we had perfect distribution and zero waste, by 2050, we're still going to have to increase the amount of food that we're producing. And we we can't wait until we're not producing enough food. It takes 10, 20 years. You know, who knows how long it's going to take for us to like figure out how to get most of our crops have more efficient photosynthesis, you know, that could take 30 years. We need to be working on that now. We need to be constantly working on this, staying ahead of the curve. So the the notion that we, this is not a problem worth solving until, you know, so, and this is, I think, a logical extension of their point. If you're saying we don't need to fix this problem because we already produce enough food, then you're saying that we should only address this issue when we're not producing enough food. But that should never be the case. We should always be addressing this issue while we're still producing enough food to, in, in order to make sure that we continue to produce enough food into the future. So that's just not a logically valid point at all, um, regardless of the facts. It's just not a valid logical point. Of course, for lots of reasons, hope that this pans out. But uh, you know, I do get fascinated. One of my one of my guilty pleasures is watching people with firm ideologies get backed into a corner and then watching how they behave. It's just like a morbid curiosity. It's like how how far will people go in rationalizing their beliefs rather than just admit that they were wrong? And apparently I haven't found a, an absolute limit yet. I mean, but it is fascinating. Like you just think, God, they have to at some point, they have to admit that they were wrong. But it's just amazing how far people will go to keep from doing that. It's a deep corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they yeah. find room somehow, <laughs> right. some way. Right. I mean, without mentioning names, Bob, Jay, uh-huh. and I know somebody who claims to this day that Trump won the popular vote over Hillary Clinton. Like Even yeah, but data... yeah, but here's the numbers, you know. I mean, yeah. it's like this is a this is a basic fact, you know. This is yeah. like not even a matter of interpretation, but it, you know that whatever it's they're counting in their, their alternate <laughs> reality. This is this is the fact. And yeah, that's it. yeah. Well, they they have their fake news site, and they think it's just or more trustworthy wow. than our news yeah. sites, which they think is probably fake. Yeah, because their fake that's news true. site says that the other news sites are fake. So right, it right. is an it's, entire elaborate sort of alternative reality. And I call it popular vote denialist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, Evan, even though that's funny, it's freaking true, man. Yep. <laughs> that's what he is. Or he, she is. I don't know who it is, but right. that's what they think. All right, Evan, you have a Thanksgiving-themed news item. That's right. Yes. Presented by, or courtesy of, I should say, the Field Museum of Chicago, Illinois. Archaeological excavation unearths evidence of turkey domestication 1,500 years ago. 
Lead author is Heather Lapham from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she, along with archaeologist Gary Feynman at the Field Museum and co-author Linda Nicholas, also of the Field Museum. They unearthed a clutch of domesticated turkey eggs, which were used as a ritual offering 1,500 years ago in Oaxaca, Mexico, which is some of the early evidence of turkey domestication. According to Gary Feynman, our research tells us that turkeys had been domesticated by 400 to 500 AD. People had made guesses about turkey domestication based on the presence or absence of bones at archaeological sites, but now we are bringing in classes of information that were not available before. We're providing strong evidence to confirm prior hypotheses. So uh, Oaxaca was the home to the Zapotec people going back thousands of years, and according to Feynman, it's very rare to find a whole cluster of intact eggs. Uh, Heather Lapham, who's an archaeologist specializing in animal bones, she knew immediately they had found five intact unhatched eggs, eggs which were left as an offering alongside seven newly hatched baby turkeys. The shells were confirmed as turkey eggs through the use of scanning electron microscopy, or SEM for short. And if you don't know what SEM is, I would look up some images online and you'll see immediately. It's like high-definition pictures of the microscopic world. It's those, you know, little bugs and things that have just so much definition. Like, you can count all the little... uh, If you're looking at an ant, you can, like, count the ridges in its eyes and things. So it's very, very, very cool stuff. So this is what they determined to be hard evidence of turkey domestication dating back to the 5th century. A full clutch of unhatched turkey eggs alongside other juvenile and adult turkey bones. That's evidence that turkeys were domesticated, according to That's cool. Can you imagine how valuable domesticated turkeys were to a you know an ancient settlement or or people like that yeah seriously you don't have to go like hunting for your food anymore you can just like rope yeah. it up and eat it it's awesome turkeys fish are, in a barrel yeah turkeys are <laughs> plump have you guys ever yes. seen a we have lots of wild turkeys in connecticut it's awesome a lot yes mm-hmm. see them all the, the time yeah on the yeah. highway everywhere Weird. They well, like twenty or thirty years ago, I think in the seventies, they stocked the state with wild turkeys, and now they're rampant. But the other thing that's taken off is the coyote population. I wonder if there's a correlation there. Hmm. But have you guys ever seen? I know Bob and Jay have a fully dom- not a wild turkey, but a domesticated turkey. You know how freaking huge they get. I think I've only seen domesticated enormous. turkeys. They're I, enormous and they're so birds. ugly. They're so ugly. They're like the ugliest birds. Eighty pound birds they get up to. They get into yeah. the eighties. Eighties pounds. That is a walking area. meal. Can you imagine <laughs> if the natives of New Zealand domesticated the moa? Wow! Right. Imagine having that. You just hanging around to eat whenever you wanted to. But how do they taste? Like chicken? The wild turkeys are uh, native to North America. So when the first adventurers set out or, you know, explorers set out, they act and came here in the, in the 1500s, some of the first explorers, they brought some of the turkeys back to Europe and they made them sort of a European version of the turkey. Uh-huh. <laughs> and for a hundred years, very successful. They very much enjoyed, you know, eating, eating the turkeys. And then what happened is on the Mayflower, 1620, they brought the your, those European versions of turkeys back to North America to breed with the native North American turkey to expand the population. And it seemed to work. Yeah, more so, genetic diversity. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Just a few things. How many millions of years ago uh, did the turkey evolve or what we know now is the 
sort of the modern wild turkey? How many millions? Millions? Of years ago? I would just figure they millions. were domesticated, you know, hell of a lot more recent than a million years ago or more. Uh, wild five tur- mm-hmm. wild turkeys. Steve says five. Any other guesses? Two. Going once. Uh, going twice. Six. Eleven million years ago. I wow. win. Price yes. is right rules. Uh, <laughs> wild wild turkeys can burst. Wild turkeys can burst into a short flight that clocks up to how many miles per hour in a little oh, short gosh. spurt? How fast can a turkey burst? Five miles an hour. Anyone else? Fifteen miles tw- an hour. Twenty-five. Their breasts are so heavy. Oh, you're saying wild turkeys? Wild- now. Dang it! I'll go to ten. Fifty-five miles per no. hour. Right, That's incredible. It's like faster than a moped. I know. <laughs> like zero, <laughs> zero to sixty. Boom. Zero to fifty-five. Uh, and estimated uh, eleven million birds were sort of the height of the wild turkey population in the nineteen thirties. It was almost wiped out. How many did it get down to roughly? Two hundred thousand. Sixty thousand. Uh, fifty. Fifty thousand. Thirty thousand. Thirty thousand. Wow, Nobody wins again. Yeah, so they had, they had to kick in uh, the conservation efforts big time in order wow, to, uh, yeah, in order to save, the, save the wild turkey. Two more and that things. was just because people were hunting them and uh, eating that's them? That's right, yes. They, as imagine, hunt, yeah. Hunters, yeah. Indi- an individual hunter or, or a, a, a group of hunters would pull in as many as 100 turkeys a day Wow! Yeah, that's in their good. hunts. And, I mean, that, that'll, that'll thin them out real fast and think of how many yeah. hunters around the continent there are. And finally, and finally, does anyone know what a pope's nose is? Yes. Jay? No. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got your bird and you've got it on your table, many of you have had it already, the fleshy tail end of the turkey, where its tail would ah. be, that is known as the Pope's nose. Oh. Pope's nose. Do you eat that part? Well, the, if you're the hungry. Ass, the ass neck? <laughs> yeah, basically the ass. Do you ass. eat the ass meat? <laughs> the nub, you mean. It's that little nub <laughs> that they That's right. It, they, they describe it as a fleshy tail portion of the turkey. The acular nubular meat? They call it the Pope's nose. I guess the Pope has his nose up the ass of the turkey. Do you guys eat that part? Not if I can help it. Yeah, I just (laughs) eat the white meat. Yeah. I'm finicky. So there you go. All right, Jay, there's an update on the EM drive. The EM drive, what the hell, right? You know, check this out. Kara, have you even heard of it? Yes, we've talked about Um, it on the show. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. So NASA Eagle Works team, you guys ever hear of NASA Eagle Works? Sure. Only because of... This article. Yeah, it's where the eagle landed. For those who don't know, it's NASA's Advanced Propulsion Physics Laboratory, and they research technologies necessary to enable human exploration of the solar system in interstellar spaceflight. Very freaking cool. I love that they call it Eagle Works. So they recently published a peer-reviewed paper that claims that the EM drive has produced or that it creates net thrust. Net thrust. What does that mean? So let me quickly tell you what the EM drive is. In case you don't know, the EM EM stands for electromagnetic. And what they do is it creates electromagnetic radiation and they shoot it into something called a microwave cavity. And so imagine this is like kind of like an ice cream cone shaped body that has no opening. It's an enclosed structure. And they shoot the radiation inside this cone and the, the radiation cannot escape the cone. So the radiation reflects around, bounces around on the inside of the cone, and its tapered shape provides the thrust. I don't know why. Very strange, but the tapered shape somehow provides thrust. Well, that's the claim anyway. That's what they're claiming. But the tapered shape is important to the idea that the thrust is happening. And this is 
also called a reactionless drive because it has no propellant. Now, typically rockets, rocket engines burn hydrogen and oxygen, and they shoot out this stuff out of the back. You know, the burning gas gets rocketed out, and that's what pushes the ship forward. So if you know physics, then you must be saying to yourself, doesn't an EM drive break Newton's third law and the conservation of momentum? You know? Right. Kara, do you have anything to say about this? Uh, So far, not buying it. I'm just checking. Okay, so it's the one that says this is the you know the uh, conservation of momentum. This is the law that says that for every action there's the opposite and equal reaction. This is right. So like you walk into Bob's bathroom and you instantly gag for obvious reasons. That's the conservation of so momentum. Unfair. It's weird right to there. me that you say opposite and equal because I've always said equal and opposite. Not that it means anything different. It's just a you know. turn of phrase. I like to shake it up, Kara. I like I that. Do. I like that. You're correct. I actually, I, you know. That's, I would normally say equal and opposite, but I just want to be contrarian tonight. I so mm-hmm. uh, NASA says in the paper that they measure very small but consistent thrust in one direction. So if their initial tests are true, then we do have one hell of a question on our hands, not only for possibly not jiving with the conservation of momentum, but also because it seems like the EM drive at very high speeds would be a free energy mach- machine. And what do skeptics think about free energy machines? Wah, 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 they oh, don't exist. Yeah. And um, that means that essentially more energy comes out of it than the energy that goes into it. Other people argue that the radio waves created by the drive are pushing against quantum virtual particles. But, you know, most people, including quantum physicists, think this is dead wrong. So that's another thing that they think. And even the guy who invented it, the drive, yeah, he isn't sure how it works, but he said that the drive creates warp bubbles and that's where the thrust comes from. And I honestly don't even know what to say about warp bubbles other than, huh? Is that a what? real thing? It's no, what I said. Uh, is that made up? It's, it's yeah, theoretical. It's it's that's theoretical. their own oh, theoretical. Yeah, okay. terminology that has no basis yeah. in science. But still, you know, <laughs> lots of people throwing shit at the wall, and so far I don't see any of it really sticking. I think they push against the space fairies. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> and and their fairy dust, yes. <laughs> so listen, so a lot is going on in being a skeptic. Let's break this down to the skeptical level. Let's Let's dig in here. So – Respectable research teams have investigated the AM drive and some confirm it's real, meaning it's real, right? They say, yep, it's doing something. There's a measurably, very small, but measurable thrust happening. Okay, great. I, I can buy that. And at this point, the current results mean that more research is required and should be very soon on the way. That's what science does. So we're not, however, fully confirmed that there is actually an effect here. Why? Well, it's too early to know. One main reason is that the effect is so small that, you know, one tiny little mistake or miscalculation, you know, an oversight can skew the results. And when you have small results, it's easier to screw up the results. Now, if they, they created this EM drive and it, it produced an incredible amount of thrust, you know, they'd be able to tell, yeah, this is actually, you know, this thing works. But because the thrust is so teeny tiny, they make one little fraction of an error and it shows a positive result. They redo the test in the future and, you know, someday they might go, oh, look, you know, it's something else. Somebody ate too many Pop-Tarts that day and no, no thrust. So we need more research. Yeah, because so the, the one way to look at it is that the smaller the effect size, the greater the number of possible sources of error and the more subtle those sources can be. You guys remember the Pioneer anomaly. Bob, I know you're a fan of the Pioneer anomaly. How long did it take the uh, you know NASA scientists to figure out what this anomalous source of thrust was in the Pioneer probe? It took them years to, to, to nail years. down where that was coming from. Huge so, mystery. 
Yeah, this is the same thing. Okay, so there's three possibilities here, right, as far as I can see. One is that the result is spurious, right? The result is wrong because of experimental error. Uh, number two, the result is genuine, but meaning that there is thrust, but it's coming from a prosaic source. We just haven't nailed down what it is. There's something happening in the experimental setup that's producing this very subtle, teeny tiny thrust you know that that they they haven't sorted through you know the the chain of cause and effect that's happening that yet the other possibility is that our knowledge of the laws of physics is deeply flawed and in 10 years we're going to be having flying cars and getting to mars in a week so i just think that the third possibility is is the by far the least likely but it's the one we want to be true the most absolutely of course. I want my, of course. I'd, I'd happy be wrong if i could have a flying car but you know, it's, it, it's really awesome happen. to think, though, that it, it's possible that electricity could so nicely be converted into thrust because this is the kind of drive we want to use in deep space. You know, we can't refuel a rocket after it's left the planet unless yeah. we you're refueling the refueling rockets and sending them ahead of time. You know, we want to be able to send things back and forth, say, from Earth to Mars and not have to refuel the damn thing. That would be fantastic. Yeah, but, but it, to be more accurate, it's the propellant. Because you still need to produce the energy, but you won't need to be throwing propellant out the back of your ship, right? It just yeah. But Steve, the energy yeah. is everywhere in our solar system because of our sun. Yeah, that's true. But if you're going interstellar, but even so, you could have a, a fission reactor that generates mad, you know, power for a long time. Yep. And as long as you don't have to carry your propellant around, you know, then mm -hmm. that makes interstellar flight much more. Plausible. So, I mean, obviously, this would be huge. It would be huge if this was real. Huge. But huge. Yeah, I, I think it's huge. Huge. There's a possibility <laughs> that there is, yeah, there's some subtle thing going on here. But even if it did, ion drives, existing mm -hmm. ion drives are way more powerful than the sure, effect sure. that they're seeing. So, mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't be, wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be useful. Maybe there'd be some niche application for it. But so I think the next step here is to test a prototype. In space, right? Like to get it up there in orbit and see if you could move it around. You think that's the next step, Steve? I think the next step would be to have some other some other confirmation from another lab. I would think. Yeah, that, but that Bob, they've had that. They've had multiple labs. Like some labs don't show the result. Some labs do show the result. Yeah, but you know, the question is: Are we are we there yet? Are we at the point where should we just keep doing more ground based testing? What's a space based experiment going to cost, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the this, problem. But this is NASA. But, uh, you know, it's like, it's like all the free energy machines. You know, run your freaking house on it, then come talk to me. You know, do a real, like you're producing a usable amount of actual power that can't be some subtle error that, you know what I mean? Then, then we'll be interested. Propel a, a satellite to the moon and then I'll believe that there's something real happening here, you know, without any other source of thrust. Until then, you know, I think this is very likely to go the way of the faster-than-light neutrinos. Again, you had a team of very serious researchers who were looking very hard to find the source of the error in their experimental setup, and they couldn't do it for years until they crowdsourced it. And, to the, and then eventually they found, oh, yeah, there's a bad cable or something. But again, it's nice to dream about this sort of thing, but playing the odds, if I were a betting man, I would say that we're going to expose some other anomaly in in the experimental setup, and that this idea that this guy came up with about the reactionless drive is just not valid. Agreed. But we'll see. 
Settle down, class. There will be no arguments from authority or silly anecdotes in this class. This is the defense against the pseudo-arts. In this class, you will learn to demarcate science from pseudoscience. You will learn how to recognize logical fallacies, deconstruct science denial, and counter conspiracy theories. In this class, you will face your darkest nightmares, from Andrew Wakefield to Dr. Oz. <laughs> Do you find this amusing, Mr. Novella J? No, uh, no, Professor. Tell me, what is the difference between a logical fallacy and a heuristic? Oh, oh I know. I don't know, sir. What about you, Mr. Bernstein? What is the role of anomaly hunting in conspiracy thinking? Please pick me, I know the answer. Well, I mean, I suppose... Too slow! Mr. Novella, Bob. What is the difference between alternative, complementary, and integrative medicine? Oh, come now, I know this one. Um... Something to do with... Wrong! Oh, oh! Oh, very well. Miss Santa Maria. There is no difference. They're all just different marketing terms for unscientific medicine. Excellent. That's 30 points for House Sagendor. But minus 20 points because you are a woman. Uh, okay. Professor? Yes, Mr. Bernstein? What's the best defense against all this bad science reporting in the muggle world? Oi, what about all that fake news then? What about that wanker Tom Cruise? Thought is easy. Become a member of the SGU. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Oh yeah. Go to theskepticsguide.org. Click on become a member and choose your level. Airy poor then, huh? You can even get premium content. Core blimey! Now, class, let's begin. Turn to page 171 of Demon Haunted World. Ah, it's easy! Alright, Bob. You're gonna, last week you talked about bacteria. This week you're going to talk to us about mitochondria. If I didn't know it, hmm. I would think you're going sweet on biology. Mm. <laughs> no, just just incredibly interesting biology. Um, so I titled this talk Removing the Mutants, and it's, it's not about the latest X-Men movie. It's about researchers from Caltech and UCLA coming up with a way to dramatically reduce the number of mutated mitochondria in cells, which could eventually greatly minimize an important component of not only mitochondrial diseases, but aging itself. Yeah, this came from the Proceedings from the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, um, okay, I just said that. So it's, uh, it's actually it's actually from the November 14 issue of Nature Communications. You just so made that up. I totally just yeah just, yeah I did. Just so you so, can hear me giggle. Yes, but not punked. but not the header. Um, this is all about mitochondria, obviously. So let's give that a quick primer uh, on what they're all about. Uh, they're just so fascinating. Uh, mitochondria are the basic. They're basically fusion reactors of our of our cells. 
of our metabolism. They're organelles in cells, tiny nanomachines that generate a- ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which powers cells and much of metabolism itself. So they have their own loop of DNA called mtDNA for mitochondria DNA, uh, which is distinct from what you think of as DNA or, or nuclear DNA, which is, of course, involved in inheritance and body structure and all that kind of stuff. So mitochondria are so distinct, we believe, because they come from separate bacteria-like organisms, prokaryotes that were engulfed by primitive cells like our own cells with a nucleus or eukaryotes about 1.5 billion years ago. Now, luckily, they didn't just eat each other, and eventually they worked out their differences. It's kind of like if Fred Flintstone's caveman car absorbed and started using a gas engine. Um, it was a one of those... Um, defining moments in evolution. So the problem is that nuclear DNA has decent repair mechanisms. Not fantastic, but they're decent. They do the job. Mitochondrial DNA, on the other hand, not so much. Um, as a result, the percentage of mutated mitochondria that you have floating around generally increase as you get older. More than generally, it increases. If, if, if you're human, you have an increasing amount of mutated mitochondria. So you have uh, about quadri- a quadrillion mitochondria in your body. So who cares if some of them are mutated? And, you know, that's kind of true. It doesn't really matter if just some of them are mutated. But you're born with some of these mutated DNAs. Uh, a newborn baby's got a certain amount. Uh, that's actually a condition called heteroplasmy. And we, we've all got it. But it's all about percentages, though. So as the percentage of mutated mitochondrial DNA increases, Increases, the cells become less and less efficient, or they can even just flat out just die. And so the result of that, as you might imagine, are manifold, especially concerning such an important uh, organelle in our cells. So you can get problems, uh, just general problems associated with aging, fatigue, muscle weakness, heart problems, the list goes on and on. Uh, you could end up with a bona fide mitochondrial diseases. Um, and there's also probably connections to degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, et cetera. So it, this is bad. When the more you get these mutated DNAs in your in your cells, it's bad. And that's why when you get older, it really sucks. This is a you know not the only reason it sucks, but it's a good chunk of it. Caltech professor of biology and biological engineering Bruce Hay said. We know that increased rates of mtDNA mutation cause premature aging. This coupled with the fact that mutant mtDNA accumulates in key tissues, such as neurons and muscles that lose function as we age, suggests that if we could reduce the amount of mutant mtDNA, we could slow or reverse important aspects of aging. Okay, so let's just get rid of those damn mutants, right? Yeah. So that's exactly what these researchers did. They took that iconic lab animal, Drosophila or fruit fly, and genetically engineered it so that 75% of the mitochondria in it in its flight muscles were mutated. So they made those specific decisions for various important decisions. So Drosophila have many disease-related genes that humans that humans have as well, and they also mature quickly. Because of those two big big reasons, they they make ideal lab animals to study. Um, also, the flight muscles were chosen because they're among the most energy-demanding tissues in the entire animal kingdom. Uh, there's, it's, if it's not number one, it's at the top of the list 
uh, not many animals have tissues that are just so metabolically active, and therefore they've got lots of uh, mitochondrial DNA. Also, the other reason is that uh, also decrease decreases in muscle function happens in all animals. It, it affects every animal, and it's also very easy to see and to measure uh, that that specific decline in a laboratory setting. So that's why Drosophila are perfect for this. So I mentioned previously that mitochondria don't repair very well. But they do, however, have a mechanism to remove old dysfunctional mitochondria, essentially eating, you know, either it, it eats itself in a sense and replacing them with new ones. And it's called mitophagy. Um, it would be like you, Jay, eating mom and dad and making new ones who don't watch Fox News all the time. You know, kind of the same idea. Gotcha. Um, okay. So for this experiment, the big question then becomes, can we augment the process of mitophagy to not only remove the old dysfunctional uh, mitochondrial DNA, but can it also remove mutated DNA? That was the big goal here. So, and that's exactly what they did. So they artificially overexpressed the activity of genes that promote this eating, uh, this, this eating mechanism. And, and what happened is it got rid of much of the mutated DNA as well. So it, it just worked dramatically. So let's see. So the percentage of uh, mutated DNA in the flight muscles went from 75% down to 4%. It just wiped it all out. It was essentially gone. So, uh, so regarding this, this is getting rid of the whole mitochondria, right? Just the mutated DNA, because you could have a mitochondria and they've got lots of these loops of uh, of DNA in it, right? So, my take, my impression was that it got rid of the um, just the mutated DNA and not the entire, because that would be you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? You could have a right. So, yeah, so that would make no sense. So, it's just the mutated DNA. Um, So, regarding this, Hayes said. Such a decrease would completely eliminate any metabolic defects in these cells, essentially restoring them to a more youthful, energy-producing state. The experiments serve as a clear demonstration that the level of mutant mtDNA can be reduced in cells by gently tweaking normal cellular processes. So that's one of the reasons why this is uh, so good, is that they're not just adding some new metabolic pathway or some new mechanism or, or method. They're just taking something that's already there, and they're just putting it a little bit into overdrive. So it's taking out not just the dysfunctional aging uh, mitochondrial DNA. It's taking out the mutated stuff as well. So what can we expect in the future? Again, we ha- we go back to Caltech professor and study participant uh, Bruce, Hay, uh, Bruce Hay. He said, now that we know mtDNA quality control exists and can be enhanced, our goal is to search for drugs that can achieve the same effects. Our goal is to create a future in which we can periodically undergo cellular housekeeping to remove damaged mtDNA from the brain, muscle, and other tissues. This will help us maintain our intellectual capabilities, mobility, and support healthy aging more generally. Basically, if I had a billion dollars, I would throw these guys a couple hundred million to look into this. This looks so promising. The results were so dramatic. And uh, I'll end with a question to Steve. I'm curious what you think. Uh, you had better be at least a little encouraged and excited about this like I am. Yeah, I mean, the idea is very exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, they probably overstated the implications for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's because we just don't know their role yeah. in those diseases. And, yeah. You know, the, the, that I think was a gratuitous connection, I must say. But uh, I, I do say. worry. They say, so the, all we have to do is find drugs to do this in people. Yeah, that's not a trivial, you know, hurdle. Yeah, right, right. That's like, all we got to do is make everything work out fine, you know. And it, I think <laughs> I get very concerned when I hear things like that. Like, all we have to do is this massive goal, which we have no idea if we're going to be able to do. I know, but all right, well, 
think of what th- what they're actually saying there. All they have to do is find a drug that will basically um, overexpress a specific gene. Uh, that I mean, we do that right now, right? I mean, we could we could kind of do that now with other genes. We've done it before in other experiments. I mean, it's not like yeah, but what know, are all the effects of it going to be? Well, yeah, that well, that, yeah. I mean, that's that's the big question. Not can we do it, but you know, what are the ramifications? Sure, the, who knows what what could happen because of it? But actually, achieving it, yeah. you know, I don't think would be tremendously difficult. But making sure you, you're dotting all your eyes and crossing all your t's and making sure you don't mutate into a real mutant, yeah, yeah. Again, this is like this is a multiple steps away from an actual application in people, and every step away that you are, there's a decreased probability that it will work yeah so you know this is probably one of those things that we're never going to hear about again but you never know you know oh man uh, i hope i hope you're wrong on that one but yeah you got to go with the odds and say we won't be hearing about this for a while uh if if anything but it's right. a, it's a fantastic encouraging first step i mean imagine the day where you can swap out all of your mitochondria for like Genetically engineered super mitochondria that oh just my god are totally yeah. optimized. To, to yeah. me, that's you know, the day that there is no more fairness in the Olympics. I'm totally okay with that. How far out and, are we with that? Oh, who knows? It, it's hard to predict. Say it, you our, know, it our could lifetime, be mm, it could mm. be thirty, forty, fifty years. Wasn't that supposed to be kind of special about Lance Armstrong, other than the fact that he was doping, was that he he had like a really high oxygen load because he had like more than normal mitochondria? There is an effect. The more a cell needs to produce more energy, the more mitochondria it produces. So that mm-hmm. so that just that just how the cell adapts. And if you're if you're a cell that doesn't do much, you know, like some people's brain cells, then you know they're not going to have a lot of they're not going to have a lot of a mitochondria in there. But maybe his baseline, you know, mitochondrial but, load is just is just far and beyond what what's normal. But um, but it does yeah, but change. It's not right. fixed. Yeah, that it's actually changing because of the crazy um, training that you're doing as well. Yeah. Oh sure, I, I'm I sure his so. muscles just just any any you know guy any anyone that could that could do what he does anyone that trains like he does will have more than a the average mitochondria you know in the muscle mm. cells for sure. Kara, what's the mitochondrial load of killer whales? I have no idea, but I do know some other things about killer whales. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> That's a really good segue. All right, so this week there's a really interesting story that was written um, for Scientific American by Rudiger Reich, or Reich, um, and he's a cetacean researcher. And sort of the, the takeaway of this is that we may actually be witnessing speciation right before our eyes. Mm-hmm. We do need to say may. There is a caveat there. Like, we're not sure if this is happening, but if we are, this is really cool because – it's exceedingly rare to be able to donkey, like document evolutionary processes in mammals and not to mention really large mammals. Obviously, we've seen evolution before our very eyes in bacteria, um, but super cool to see that there may be some signs of speciation occurring within these really large mammals. We, so here's a little bit of- we, We've seen them elsewhere as well. Don't leave the implication that it's just bacteria. We've seen them in insects and yeah, lizards and other insects, things. Insects, well. lizards, mm-hmm. small sure. organisms with quick yeah. life cycles, uh, yeah. quick life cycles. I mean, for the most part, it's a life cycle issue, right? It's very hard to watch evolution occur before your eyes if the life cycle of the organism that you're watching is similar to your own life cycle. It's a hundred years, yeah. Yeah. But when it's something that divides very quickly, we can actually see these cases. 
Um, so a couple background things about killer whales. They're the most widely distributed mammal after humans. They what? exist in every ocean. They have no known physical or geographical barriers because the oceans are all connected. Um, and they really, I thought travel. bats. I thought bats would be next. I think what that means is that they're the most widely distributed, meaning that they um, they aren't isolated. Like there are certain types of bats that live in certain areas, but they never go to other areas. Whereas killer whales travel more than a hundred kilometers a day and can move thousands of kilometers within a, just a few weeks. So they're really widespread across the ocean, and they actually travel very far across the ocean as well. And that's that's why this story, I think, has special significance. So since the 1970s, researchers have been able to document pretty unique behaviors amongst different groups of orcas. They've seen changes in or not changes, but differences in coloration, in body size, in dorsal fin shape in how they hunt prey and what their prey actually is. You know, some of them eat large fish, some eat smaller fish, some eat seals, some eat, um, I think they're pronounced mink whales, some eat penguins. And they also communicate using three major modalities, echolocation, pulsed calls, and whistles. And different groups of killer whales tend to you know, prioritize different types of communication or use, you know, more echolocation and less pulse calls, or they whistle a lot more, but they almost never um, echolocate. So since the 70s, researchers have noticed this, like, why are some of these killer whales doing this and others aren't, especially when they're all swimming around next to one another? They've also started within probably the last 15 years looking at their genes, actually testing their genes and comparing the, ge uh, the genetic diversity from whale to whale. Um, I keep calling them whales, which is kind of confusing. They're actually dolphins. A killer whale is a type of dolphin. It's also known as an orca or a blackfish. Um, they are cetaceans, like dolphins and whales are both cetaceans, but technically a killer whale is a type of dolphin. Very confusing. Um, anyway, so these different groups, what uh, researchers actually call ecotypes to try and distinguish them, they appear to live um, often side by side with almost no fraternization or inbreeding. So this is extra weird because they're all the same species. Every killer whale you've ever seen, every orca is the same species, but they have these ecotypes, these subgroups that eat totally different food, that have totally different calls, and that even have different physical traits like a, a, the size of the eye spot or the shape of their dorsal fin. So researchers are like trying to figure out why this is happening and what could account for it. When we think about evolution and speciation, what do we usually think of as the cause for like isolation. one isolation, right? One ancestral group blitz into two because they're they're geographically disconnected, right? There's a river between them or an ocean or a mountain range or something. That is the historically well-accepted type of speciation. It's called allopatric speciation. That occurs when those two populations of an ancestral species are separated. Um, it's the traditional school of thought. And some researchers still hold true that it's 100% fundamentally necessary that at some point in time, there has to be some allopatric speciation in order for two species to emerge or new species, I should say, it could be more than two to emerge. But there's another type of speciation called sympatric speciation. 
And that happens when groups aren't geographically distinct at all. Like they've always been next to one another, but they seem to evolve due to other pressures, like exploiting different food sources. That usually happens in plants and to a lesser extent in like simple animals. But in mammals, it's super rare. And that's why this case with the killer whales is especially interesting. And in this case, um, the author of this article and many, many um, research papers that have been written about this are positing that it's due to what they're calling culture. So it's it's an interesting concept. You know, we could argue about what the definition of culture really is. Does culture require language? Does culture require tradition? But ultimately, what they're kind of pointing to as talking about culture is really hunting mechanisms and communication mechanisms. Yeah, it's learned behavior. Learned behavior. So to give you an example, um, there's a great image from this article that shows killer whales are both in the northern and so- southern hemisphere and they, you know, live in all the oceans. In the northern hemisphere, there are a bunch of different types, resident killer whales, type one killer whales, type two, transient killer whales and offshore killer whales. In the southern hemisphere, there are also five distinct um, forms, uh, type B, which are pack ice killer whales, type A's, type B, gerloshes, I'm not pronouncing that right, type D, killer whales, and type C, killer whales. And when you actually start to dig into what's known about them, there's some super cool stuff like type one killer whales of the northern hemisphere eat herring and mackerel. And what they do is they herd all the fish together in a while they're swimming in a pod, they herd the fish together into a really tight ball. And then they like whack it with their tails and like knock them unconscious. <laughs> and then it's really easy for them to Smart. eat them. And other killer whales don't really exhibit that behavior. The pack ice killer whales of the southern hemisphere around Antarctica, they will find um, seals that have, are floating on ice floats. And they'll, they'll go over them and like and like push them off the ice floats and then eat them and no other killer whales show that type of behavior and it's very specific to this one type that's also genetically somewhat distinct um same thing uh they kind of noticed over time that l- large killer whales that tend to heart to hunt large prey like other um or I shouldn't say other but like whales and seals they tend not to use echolocation very often because um the, the large prey that they're hunting can hear it. So they tend to use, they, they hunt relatively silently because they don't want to throw off their prey. But killer whales that hunt just fish are super chatty because apparently the fish have a hard time hearing all of their calls. So there's a lot of really interesting things that have happened. But the weird thing is these killer whales live side by side. They swim right next to one another and they just tend not to breed and they tend not to fraternize too much. So these researchers really think that this, um, sympatric type of speciation is happening due to culture. And of course, only time is going to tell if it is true speciation, because as of right now, in a forced situation, these orcas can breed. Like there's nothing genetically distinct enough that they wouldn't have viable offspring. Yeah, but those other orcas are assholes. (laughs) Exactly. And if they think of each other as assholes for long enough and they they continue to not breed and not breed, they may continue to develop these mutagens um, and and only breed with with like individuals. And soon enough mutation may have occurred that they can't breed whatsoever. They'll cross a line. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. I mean, it is – 
I don't know if I can call it full speculation, but I do think we want to be cautious about our language. We may be witnessing speciation. It's kind of one of those things where we don't we won't know if it's speciation until the speciation occurs. Until it happens, yeah. Yeah. But there does seem to be some evolutionary pressure that's happening here and very special pressure because it appears to be due to culture and not any geographical barriers. That is cool. Yeah, I was reading about this too. This has actually been known about for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading a 2013 article which was talking about the difference between the Pacific and the Atlantic. So like in the Pacific, you definitely have the northern Pacific orca who eat fish and the southern who eat the ma- mammals like seals. Totally mm-hmm. different behavior, different hunting style. And that, But in the Atlantic, you also have two populations of orca, that one that eat fish and one that eat mammals. But – they're not as picky. They will – the fish eaters will occasionally eat seals. Mm-hmm. So they're not as distinct culturally as the other populations are, which is interesting. So even the variation is variable, like how you know how picky they are and how much uh, divided they are by their behavior. So we, we may see speciation occur in one case but not the other just because yeah. of how strictly they're sticking with their, with their behavior. That's their learned behavior. It's interesting. I- and even when you look at their morphology, I mean, I am a totally untrained eye. I do not study orcas at all. But when you look at uh, a lot of the northern hemisphere forms, to me, I don't see that big a difference. Probably, you know, if I look really closely, I'll start to notice slight differences in overall body size or in um, dorsal fin shape. But when I look at the southern hemisphere ones, there are some big mamajama orcas and there are some orcas that look like almost snub nose. They look like a totally different shape. And yeah. they actually hunt different things like the type D, which looks totally different to me, hunts Patagonian toothfish. But the type B pack ice one, which is like big and muscular, um, almost exclusively hunts seals. Behavior is part of the environment of, an, of mm-hmm. a population. And that's enough. That's enough isolation you know, to create different species. I think that's what we're seeing here. It is just interesting that that an organism that we think of, I mean, it's obviously a, a charismatic megafauna. Like this is a big guy that's like swimming throughout the oceans, but that they it's would Shamu. look at another one. Yeah, Shamu. That Shamu would look at another Shamu and be like, that guy's a jerk. Look at him eating penguins like an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> like I'm not doing oh, that. God. You know, it's so funny. Like I don't want to mate cruise. with that. That's weird. The yeah. penguin breath. Fish breath. Yeah. Yeah. It's sure. gross. <laughs> <laughs> Take I a love Mentos. That. I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Woo-hoo. So you say, so, so we missed last week. Sorry about that. Last week, uh, well, two weeks ago, I played this noisy. Well, well, what do you think? The world's worst dental drill. Buzzer. Yeah, obviously something, I don't know, to me it sounds like telecommunications-y. Yeah, like almost like one of those little... Yeah, yeah, that's... It definitely has that vibe, without a doubt. <laughs> However, that's not it. So this uh, was sent in, I think I said this last time, by a listener named Matthew Jones, who's a friend of the show. And um, he said, so they had an astronomy lecture recently, and they had a scientist named Susan Malali Malali from SETI Institute, and she talked about binary stars. This is a binary star, and how some binary stars have something that they call a heartbeat, and the scientists use the heartbeat to figure out lots of other interesting details about the stars. Um, So she played this sound for them in the lecture, and he said it was pretty cool, and 
and he was saying how um, they can identify, I guess, the stars by this and, and details about that. Very, very interesting signal that the star produces and how they could use that signal to find out details about the actual binary star. I think that is very, very cool. So thank you, Matthew. Um, mm-hmm. I had guesses. Lots of people guessed that it was a pulsar. Hmm. And then I, I was reading about the difference between binary stars and pulsars, and I found out that there can be binary pulsars. That's pretty cool. It's one of those. Well, it could sure, be. Sure. That could be. So there, some people might have, get half credit for this one. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not exactly sure about the specific star that we were listening to, but that is the explanation. So what did they cool. say, Jay? They, they said that it was binary stars? Binary stars put out this thing that they call a heartbeat, and that's the sound. All right. So yeah, I guess I can get partial credit for that. All right. 40%. This week's Who's That Noisy? 35. So here's this week's Who's That Noisy? Get like, this shit. It's a parrot. World no, War II codes it's obviously, in yeah, German. It's a, it's a human. It sounds like a woman. I, I won't. Of course, I'm not going to tell you what it is this week. Now, this was sent in uh, by a listener named Justin Haywood. And I love his last name. Hey, would you blow me? Yeah, that's good. Uh, I love that. So anyway, thank you, <laughs> Justin, for that. Everybody, please. Try to guess what this one is and keep sending me in noises that you heard in the last couple of weeks to mm-hmm. WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right. Thanks, Jay. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake Rooney. We have a theme this week, as you guys might have anticipated, in honor of Thanksgiving. The theme what? is... You said you uh, weren't going to do that. Yeah. The theme Surprise. is Native Americans. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Native Americans. Okay, here we go. Item number one. There are more Native Americans living today than there were in 1492, according to the average estimates of population at that time. Item number two, Native American words that found their way into English include all of the following. Chipmunk, pecan, raccoon, skunk, avocado, chocolate, shack, barbecue, tomato, and cannibal. That's not... (laughs) That's not an exhaustive list. List it can include it may include more than those words, but it does include all of the ones that I mentioned. And item number three: the term Sioux is not the real name of the Sioux tribe, but derives from an insulting name told to the French by their Algonquin neighbors. Bob, go first. More Native Americans today living today than in 1492. Maybe yes, no. I mean. Either way, I could I could buy it. I mean, there's nothing here to that I could say that would make me lean one way or more than the other. I mean, I'm sure I don't know. Uh, okay, let's go to two. All those words. Um, I mean, I guess I could buy most of them. The one that uh, that stands out though is chocolate. Chocolate? I'm not buying that one. Could be wrong. 
Uh, and the Sue one. Uh, sure, I could see that that was derogatory. I mean, why not? So, uh, what the hell? I'm, I'm going to go with the chocolate one and say that is fiction. Okay. Maybe. Evan? More Native Americans living today than in 1492. There were probably, I'll take a wild stab at it, 2 million, maybe 3 million in the Americas at the time. And I would think that there's probably more than that today. So I think that one's right. Uh, yeah, the, the one I'm having trouble with here is the word. And I think the one I'm ha- the word I'm having the most problem with is tomato. All the other ones, uh, I, I notice a pattern in the other words, which I won't reveal for the sake of the people who haven't guessed yet. Um, but I will say that tomato stands out to me as the one word there. And then the last one, the term Sioux, not the real name of the Sioux tribe, derives from an insulting name. Well, see, the problem I have with this one is that I, I think you're, I think it's going to turn out to be that Sioux's not the real name, but it didn't derive from an insulting name. It's uh, by the French, uh, told to the French by their Algonquin neighbors. Oh, maybe that is the story about the Sioux. All right, what the heck? I'll join Bob under the bus and say that the uh, Native American words one is going to be the fiction. Okay, Kara? I'm going to go backward. I think that the Sioux it sounds like a French word. So um, I'm sure that they heard Sioux from the, – well, I'm not sure, but it sounds quite likely that they heard Sioux from Algonquins. They heard it pronounced and they wrote it like that because S-I-U-X definitely looks French to me. S-I-O-U-X. Sorry, S-I-O-U-X. Jeez, just skipping letters. Words that found their way into English uh, from – Native American tribes, chipmunk, sure, pecan. I like that you guys say pecan. Um, pecan, raccoon, skunk, avocado, chocolate, shack. Barbecue makes me laugh, but that's because in my mind I keep thinking like a bottle of barbecue sauce, but I'm sure that you're actually talking about like cooking something over fire. Um, tomato and cannibal. Okay. I'm having a real issue with the idea that there are more Native Americans living today than there were in 1492. We decimated the Native American population. Decimated. I mean, the Trail of Tears, like, so, like smallpox, so many Native Americans were slaughtered, murdered. Nine, 90% of them when you say decimated. So many. And so I really <laughs> think that. Mm-hmm. Ten, 10%. Uh, right, 10% left. Yeah, no, no. So I, decimate means to remove one-tenth. Oh, oh, I thought to leave one-tenth for me. No, well, we decimated times nine plus Um, (laughs) that's just just the etymology now means to wipe out yeah yeah i mean between intentional murder and displacement and also um rampant disease i i i really would be surprised if somehow the numbers had bounced back like that's just crazy i know there were less people in 1492 but we're talking less people in cities. We're talking less people culturally. I don't know. There's, I, I think there were probably a lot of Native, Native Americans living in the Americas before the white settlers came over. So I'm going to go with that as the fiction. Okay. And Jay. Yes. Uh, okay. So there's uh, more Native Americans living today than there were in 1942. 1492. <laughs> 1492. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's right. definitely more living today than there were in 1942. <laughs> Hope so. That's a really awesome idea here, right? So yeah, isn't that interesting? Were how many were there back then? Because there's different factors that you could take into consideration. That is so long ago. 
That's such a long time ago. It's interesting. All right, so I'm not sure about that. I got to put one on the back burner and see what we got next. So, this one here about us we, English English words deriving from Native American. Yes, I've totally, absolutely, absolutely think that we we pulled a lot of language from them. So the last one here, Sue, it's not the even chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I mean. The thing is, Bob, I can't imagine Steve like said, yes, they did chipmunk, but no, not chocolate. And that's the thing. I think it's just the idea that did we get language, you know, words from them or not? And I would say absolutely. There was too much interaction with them and, and too much talking in order for us not to borrow some words from their language. So that's not the, that's not the point, though. Okay, so this last one about about the the Sioux name deriving from French from the French by huh, that's interesting. It's not the real name, but it's derivative of some insult. Okay. I don't think that one is true, but I'm not sure about the first one either, about the how many live today versus 1492. Huh. I just don't think that the Sioux Nation, their name is, is an actual derogatory term at all. I don't believe that one's got to be the fake. Okay. Wow. Ooh. So you guys are all spread out. All over Very the place. Interesting. Which means you can't win. Which means I can take no. <laughs> that, for me, that is a win. I like when they're all spread out. Which means I can sure. take these in any order. Uh, let's do these in reverse order. We'll start with number three. The term Sioux is not the real name of the Sioux tribe, but derived from an insulting name told to the French by their Algonquin neighbors. Jay, you think this one is a fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is Say science. It. Yeah, Sorry, baby. Yeah. Very interesting story here. And I read multiple sources. Everyone tells it in a slightly different way, but there's definitely some overlap here. So yeah, so the, the basic story goes that the French asked the Algonquins, what are their names? The names of that, those guys over there. And the Algonquin who didn't like, didn't like them. Oh, they're assholes. Said basically <laughs> the word, the word translates to snakes. But in the yeah. diminutive derogatory. So the, probably the best translation into current culture would be, oh, those guys, they're effing little snakes. <laughs> That's, That's the whoa. best one. I like. yeah. Not snakes in the grass. Yeah, they're effing little snakes. They're diminutive <laughs> pejorative, right? So, you know, effing little snakes. Uh, <laughs> that, that, and that word is, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher all of the actual words. It was Natoase. Or Natoaso, and or it's Natoe is the singular, and then Natoasu is the plural, and then the French just cut it down to Sue and spelled it French. You know, as you said, Kara, the French spelling of it. So they made it plural. So it's effing little snakes instead of a little snake. Natoasu was changed. They was, must hate that. Yeah, they do. They do. So one of the mm. references I read was. Uh, the Lakota Times newsletter, uh, because their real name is the Lakota. There's actually yeah. three oh, tribes. I've heard that. There's yes. the Dakota, the Lakota, and the Nakota. Yeah, so that they make the what we no. now refer to as the Sioux Nation, but they're really the Dakota, the, the Lakota, and the Nakota. So the, the Lakota newsletter, they were, the guy was given the whole history of the etymology of the word. Um, so that was one of the sources that I used. Very, very interesting. Uh, so they, yeah, they don't like to be referred to as the Sioux. They are the Lakota. You know, they want to be referred to by their tribe name. As they um, should. Yeah. As they should. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. and it was kind of shitty, uh, that, that that's, imagine that the, like there was a really negative word that their enemies used 
essentially right. that got stuck as the word, <laughs> even though it was the end of the word Frenchified, it was still, you know, the, the, the insult that ended up getting used as the term for, it. and they also just grouped a bunch of tribes together. So you guys were all the Sioux, you know? It, yeah. Yeah. So wow. it, it was yeah. really, yeah. Very, yeah, very, very insulting. And Ugh. they're like, I don't even know that guy. Ugly. What are you talking about? I know. And, yeah. and it's not an obscure tribe name. I mean, Sioux, you could argue was one of the, it's one of know, the, the biggest top, yeah. top like three or Cherokee four that, that or people yeah. know. People have yeah. heard that and know it. Yeah, the one, one collectively one of the most populous tribes. Okay, let's go back to number two. Native American words that found their way into English include all of the following: chipmunk, pecan, pecan, <laughs> raccoon, skunk, Can. avocado, chocolate shack, barbecue, tomato, and cannibal. Wait, uh, you didn't mean to say chocolate shack, right? It's chocolate comma shack. Yes, right? that's correct. <laughs> okay. So Bob and Evan think yeah. that this one is the. Fiction. I don't know what a chocolate shack would be, but I want to go there. Yeah, I want to go to the chocolate shack. <laughs> Bob, I would think this one is fiction. Jay and Kara think this one is science. And this one is science. <gasps> ah! Those are yes! all Native American words. Chocolate. Yes, chocolate. 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 <laughs> there are more. There are lots more. It's, I was surprised. I believe it, but they don't sound like I what I would Bob. expect, especially chocolate. What do you mean you knew it? You knew chocolate came from <laughs> came from Native American Chocolate Bullshit. was definitely the ringer. I put that one in there. I mean, there are a lot that are obvious, like papoose, you know. Yeah, of course. Wigwam. <laughs> Wig- totem. Wigwam. <laughs> totem, right? Like, Wamba. really, you had, you had to put totem on the list. But there Tomato were- <laughs> would have gotten me, too, because I would have not Tomato thought totally that that was a me. Native Tomato American and, plant. And potato. And woodchuck, yeah, woodchuck though sounds like woodchuck, but whatever. <laughs> I, I'm still hung up on chocolate. I mean, how did they influence the naming of that delicious composite? What the hell? That chocolate. Everyone a po- calls it that. Right. Avocado. How? What percentage of the American states are named after Indian names? Ooh, good oh, question. Probably twenty five percent. Well, Indiana, yeah, I'd say 20, 25.1%. Uh, the Dakotas. Fifty percent. Fifty percent. Connecticut is. Half. Good for them. Good for them. At the very least, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of animals, a lot of food, and a lot of states basically got named after. Cool. Got we be absorbed the uh, the Indian name. Here's another one. They list powwow. Yeah, we know about that powwow. Yeah, wigwam. Did I mention I love that wigwam. That's yeah. a yes, you one. did. Squaw. Longhouse. Squaw. TP. Yeah. Those are the yeah. Teep. Those are the obvious TP. ones. But yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of words we used. Cool. Poncho. Manatee. 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 Oh, that's a Abalone. Good one. Pe- right, and then Peyote, mesquite, guacamole, coyote. Guacamole. Chili. Oh, I meant to put chili on there. Chili. That that's true because we think of them as being Spanish, but obviously that was Native American first. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <sighs> Chocolate. <laughs> okay. Uh, tomato. <laughs> this means that there are more Native Americans living today than there were in 1492, according to the average estimates of population at that time. That is the fiction. Woohoo! This was a tough one. I almost had to make this the fiction because we don't know how many Native Americans there were living at the time. There's a number of different sources on this. That's why I had to take the average. The range of estimates ranges from 2 million to yep. 18 million living at the time. The average, though, and this is, I think, you know, and multiple sources says that the consensus of scholarly opinion is that it's about 10 million. But okay. others say we really don't know. There could be a huge range, but 2 to fit, two to 18 is like the range with 10 being the average of those estimates. So let's say 10. 
So how many do you think are alive today? Ugh, 1%. Are you call, are we calling Native Americans 100% or 50%? What are we? Yeah, good question. That's a good question. question. That's a good question. So we don't know is really the answer, but uh, what we do have in the United States is census data. And what we could say is this is the number of people who listed only Native American or Alaskan Native as their ethnicity. And then there's another percentage of people who listed listed it as their ethnicity, but along with other ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So we have those numbers. About 2.5 million people listed Native American or mm. Alaskan Native as their only ethnicity. And then another 3 million for a total of about 5 million mm. listed it so- along with other races. So it's – but that's the self-report on census data. So that's but that's probably not too far off. So I mean, there is a little bit of overlap. The the two million pure blood, if I you will, yeah. Native Americans is right at the lower end of the estimates. That's why I had to say the average estimate because two million is the like two point one or whatever million is the lowest estimate for the population in fourteen ninety two. And obviously, for those who don't know, that I chose that date because that's the date that Columbus landed in the New World. That was wait, what kind of average? Mean, median, or mode? Doesn't matter. They're all <laughs> well they're said, all greater well than. Than the two whatever million. So there's still a good chance that it was, you know, hacked by a fifth or by four. Well, hang on, but that's the population today. Obviously, it's rebounded tremendously. That's true. In the last century, so how low did it go? How low did they? Yeah, that's the question. Hundreds of thousands, probably. Yeah, tens of thousands. It got 20. down. It got down to about two hundred thousand at the lowest yeah. point. Yeah, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, say tens cracked, of thousands. Definitely yeah. around nineteen hundred or so. Eighteen ninety. Yeah, eighteen. From what the what? What were they at their height? Or they had fourteen ninety two? Oh, you already said 18, that. Yeah, 18, upwards of eighteen. Yeah. Let's say ten million. Yeah, yeah it's like ten million as an average estimate. Ten million. Wow, fourteen ninety two down to two hundred thousand. F them up. What? Oh, that's, yeah. that's bad. That's really that goddamn bad. genocide. What it the was. Hell? It was of genocide. That's sure was. Yeah, well accepted that it's genocide. It was. Some of it was deliberate. So, as Kara said, a lot of it was smallpox measles mm. diseases it was just they had no resistance to our european diseases wiped them yeah. out i mean that just that really destroyed them and then we just took their land you know that, yeah we just made them walk yeah, for like miles the age and miles of and conquering miles. yeah i got a question why didn't they wipe out because uh, we lived in cities because we lived in cities and we bred uh, all these diseases ice. and the, the more tightly packed your population is the more diseases develop. And so we were city dwellers with all of our fancy diseases going to, you know, again, more rural kind of lower population density who didn't have a lot of of the similar diseases. Okay, so yeah, sense. it was very asymmetrical in that way. And let's be clear, smallpox did kill a lot of white people too. It yeah. just wasn't oh, sure like we had known about it for a long time. We had been around it. People were starting to like immunize against it, right? Yeah, like the survivors. That gross there was thing. Survivors. Yeah. Pox. Where they would like cut their skin and put a little bit of pox in it and yeah, hope that they right. didn't catch the first it. first inoculation at the Super time. Super gross. Great. That was a lot later. Um, that was at the 1800s. But 18, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, late yeah, 17th. That's true. 18, right, late, that's true. late, early. But it was just um, that, yeah, the people who had, there was some natural immunity to it. It wasn't as devastating to mm. European populations as, but the, the completely virgin, you know, Native Americans were just, they had no, the entire, entire tribes would get wiped out by, disease, you know, when, when we started showing up. Uh, it was bad. It was really bad. Here's another interesting thing that I that, – I mean, I knew this, but this is one of the things I was reading about recently. So you know that horses evolved in the Americas. 
Yes. Yeah. And then they migrated across the Bering Strait into Asia and then Europe. Mm -hmm. And they did that multiple times. In fact, originally paleontologists thought that horses evolved in Europe because if you look at the fossil record, there are these sequential changes in the horse species over time. But they those, were there for so long. They were successive migrations oh, from the Americas oh, cool. where the, and Whoa. it wasn't until they really, you know, did the, found the fossil evidence of horses in the Americas that they realized, oh crap, they evolved here. And they were just migrating. The different species were migrating uh, over to Asia and Europe. But the horses died out in the Americas. Again, it's controversial whether or not they were wiped out by overhunting by the indigenous populations or something else, but they were gone. Then Europeans brought horses back to the Americas wow. and reintroduced them into circle of life. Yeah, Native American mm -hmm. culture, uh, totally transforming you know Native American culture because they they obviously horses are incredibly useful. You know, mm -hmm. domesticated animals <laughs> in general burden. are, yep. but I mean, Horby, what's I mean, think about it. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine like where would trans transportation have come from if horses weren't there? And what effect, what effect did they have on the progress of humanity? Just travel, just any, being able to move at all. Like, and not just carry, carry heavy stuff. loads. Yeah, they're being yeah, fields. Move you and all your stuff. Yeah. And they plow your fields. Are buffalo domesticatable? Buffalo were never domesticated. Camels, camels kind of serve a horse-like function in the Middle East. They're domesticated. But there's no equivalent in Africa. Africa had no beast of burden to domesticate. Mm. Zebras don't, are not domesticatable. Yeah. Imagine if sure, it were. That, sure about in that? Africa could – yeah, I'm sure about that. It's Afri interesting too because they have so much hoof stock and like none of that works. Yeah. Hoof they're all stock. too like – they're all hoof too kind of – cool. Yeah, they have a lot of hoof stock. They have a lot of um, – what are they called? Ungulates? Yeah. I, they they, um, they don't follow a herd like leader, you know. So mm -hmm. they, they, the programming wasn't there to be domesticated but – the horse. For which animals? Yeah, I would think like, maybe a like wildebeest if they could have domesticated that. It just it wasn't one. It just so happens that like a pack of horses has a stallion leader, you know, and so yeah. the, they're already programmed to to be to follow someone else. Just like dogs, dogs have a pack leader. Pack, they're already yeah. programmed to you know. So humans could step in and go, nope, we're the leader now. Now you follow us. We're the yeah, pack that's leader. True. We're but but zebras yes, don't. Master. You know, some herd animals. Do they? There's just no one leader. They're just whatever. Like, uh, yeah, the whole idea of domestication is fascinating. Good job, Kara. Sole loser last week, right? And sole winner. Yeah. This week. Oh, wow. wow. I've come back. Yeah. Reversal of fortune. Yep. Woo. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, yeah. It was a good stretch. We broke that. Okay. Year, I think. <laughs> All right, Evan. Give us a quote. <laughs> Any thespians among us uh, or listening out in the audience? Master thespian. Perhaps they'll enjoy this. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treachers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers, by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in, by a divine thrusting on, an admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. I don't get it. William Shakespeare, King Lear, Act 1, Scene 2, spoken by Edmund. So it's uh, basically saying, you know, 
foolish people, foolish humans, <laughs> putting their faith in uh, sorcery and the magic of stars and astrology and other such nonsense. Yeah, they blame all of their vices and flaws on astrology, basically, is what gotcha. he's saying. When they should be blaming them on God? Themselves. No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I heard some God references in there. No. I could be wrong. Well, divine not, thrusting. Uh, yeah, divine. But, it, but I think divine meaning the heavens, not God. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, the nice use of the word whoremaster. You don't hear that too often. <laughs> you ah. don't. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a hard word to use. Whoremaster man. It doesn't come up that often. Uh, <laughs> I like that. But... <laughs> And a goatish disposition. Goatish people disposition. have a goatish, goatish disposition. Like <laughs> hey guys, yeah, happy Jay. Thanksgiving. Yes, happy Aww. Thanksgiving to happy, all. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So, be, hey, before we end, this is the episode where we remind our listeners that in a few weeks we're going to be recording our year-end summary, year-end in review. So, send us emails. On those emails, the subject line is going to be 2016 review. And you are going to include in that email your vote for your favorite science news item, your favorite SGU bit, the uh, skeptical hero of the year, the skeptical jackass of the year, favorite quote of the year, you know, favorite SGU bit of the year. Favorite noisy. Favorite noisy. Fa- send, send favorite new rogue. You favorite know. new right, rogue. Right, yeah, right, right. <laughs> that one comes up every year, yeah. <laughs> favorite new commercial for membership. Always a fun episode, but you know, we, get, we, need, we, we need you to send us all this info so that we can talk about it. Reminisce about a strange but interesting year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. More to come. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 